Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Where There's Smoke, There's Fire, Gautama's Nyaya Sutra. These days, most philosophers are specialists. They work in metaphysics, ethics, epistemology, the philosophy of mind, or what have you, and would not claim expertise in all these subdisciplines. In earlier historical periods of European thought, by contrast, philosophers were more likely to be all-rounders. Plato is famous for his political theory and for his metaphysics of forms, Hume for his critique of causation and his theory of ethical sentiment. Early Indian philosophy, though, seems more to have anticipated our contemporary scene. Given its devotion to scriptural exegesis, it was natural for the Mimamsa school to focus on questions about language, just as Vedanta naturally followed the Upanishads in investigating the nature of the self. Likewise, we said that Samkhya and Yoga formed something of a double act, devoting themselves respectively to theoretical and practical philosophy. The same sort of thing happens with our final pair of post-Vedic schools. Nyaya specializes in logic and epistemology, Vaisheshika in metaphysics. Of course, we shouldn't exaggerate here. It's not as if there were ancient Indian philosophy departments with one chair for each of the six schools, and with controversies over whether to think about finally hiring a Buddhist. Some figures did have interests spanning the supposed boundaries between the schools. The ultimate example was Vajaspati Mishra, who in the 10th century wrote works within the traditions of Nyaya, Samkhya, Yoga, Mimamsa, and Vedanta, and was thus honored with the title Master of All Systems. Then, too, we find each school exploring a range of issues, rather than sticking relentlessly to its distinctive topic. Nyaya is no exception here, it has a good deal to say about liberation and rebirth. Still, Nyaya is first and foremost a tradition of logical and epistemological reflection, which grew out of a longer history of thinking about knowledge and its sources. We already saw how the medical treatise, called Charaka Samhita, listed four pramanas, or sources of knowledge, in order to explain how doctors have come to learn about the human body and its treatment. Nyaya is going to specialize in expounding the pramanas and face up to skeptical attack on the possibility of knowledge, coming especially from the Buddhists. This intellectual mission is mentioned explicitly in the foundational texts of Nyaya, which, as in the other schools, consist of a set of canonical sutras, followed by a bhashya commentary and then further exegetical works. We'll mostly be discussing the first two of these texts, the Nyaya Sutra, which, according to the latest estimates, was written in the 1st or 2nd century AD, and the commentary written on it by Vatsyayana, around the year 450. We will also make occasional mention of Ujjotakara, who wrote a further commentary on Vatsyayana in the late 6th century. The Nyaya Sutra is ascribed to a man named Gautama, also known as Akshapada. His sutras, or perhaps we should say the sutras that were eventually collected under his name, are divided into five books. In addition to analysis of argument structure and the sources of knowledge, they give advice on the proper way to conduct debates. 
Occasionally, the brief is extended to the kind of metaphysical issues associated more with Vaisheshika, like the nature of parts and wholes, the existence of atoms, and universals. The commentator Vatsyayana is in no doubt as to what makes Nyaya distinctive, though. He says, Nyaya is the examination of things with the help of evidence. An argument based on observation and received belief is called an anviksha, or reconsideration. And the discipline known as anvikshiki, or nyaya, is that which pertains to such arguments. We've actually seen that word anvikshiki before, though it was quite a while ago in the second episode of this series, to be exact. Just on the off chance that you don't remember, we mentioned back then that in his political treatise, the Atta Shastra, Kautilya mentioned Anvikshiki as one of the four branches of learning. The word means something like rational investigation, and in Kautilya presumably has a rather broad meaning. Now, Vatsyayana is trying to appropriate the term for his own school, applying it specifically to the study of arguments based on evidence. He makes these remarks in the course of commenting on the opening sentence of the Nyaya Sutra. It lists 16 items that, according to Gautama, comprise the subject matter of the Nyaya system. The list spans epistemological concepts, starting right off the bat with the term pramana itself, and elements of inquiry and debate, like destructive criticism and intentional distortion of the opponent's view. Vatsyayana states that, Without the specific mention of these items for study, Anvikshiki would have been a mere study of the self or spiritual discipline, like the Upanishads. By its discussion of the topics listed, it is shown to have its unique subject matter. In other words, this list encapsulates what distinguishes the investigative, critical discipline of Nyaya from the philosophies of path and purpose we examined in detail early in this series and, for that matter, from the agendas pursued by other Vedic schools. A close examination of this list will thus reveal how the Nyayikas conceived of their own intellectual endeavor. Let's begin with the term that opens the treatise, pramana. This refers, roughly speaking, to a means of getting at truth or acquiring knowledge. Gautama's Nyaya recognizes four such pramanas, perception, inference, comparison, and testimony. In Gautama's initial list, the word pramana is followed by the term prameya, which just means whatever one comes to know by using a pramana. So perception counts as a pramana because it lets me know the objects around me. An object that I actually see or hear would be a prameya. In Nyaya, and especially in the commentary by Vatsyayana, knowledge is regarded as a form of activity. Just as we might say that someone cuts a tree with an axe, so we can say that someone sees a tree with her eyes, and in general someone knows something by means of some pramana. As so often we're seeing here the influence of the grammatical reflections found in Panini, who made action central to the analysis of sentences and explained other grammatical elements as contributing factors, like the instrument or purpose of the action. For Vatsyayana, the purpose of knowledge is indeed crucially important. He begins his commentary by saying that knowledge is needed in order to secure any desired objective. Each of us exerts effort only for the sake of achieving such an objective. Here, one might think of an idea we encountered in Mimamsa, 
that it is a sacrificer's desire that makes a ritual incumbent upon the sacrificer. No desire, no action. Now, Vatsyayana adds, no knowledge, no result. After all, how can you get what you want when you literally don't know what you're doing? Vatsyayana invokes the point again later on, when he responds to the standard skeptical argument that any means of knowledge must be ratified by some further means of knowledge, leading to a regress. Thus, the skeptic is suggesting, we cannot trust a pramana, like perception, unless some further perception tells us that it is trustworthy. No, replies Vatsyayana. If this were true, then the activities of practical life would be impossible, since the only way we ever achieve anything that we want is by knowing how to get it. This applies to mundane goals like wealth and pleasure, but also to liberation. Nyaya competes with the Buddhists not only on the epistemological front, by refuting skeptical arguments like the one just mentioned, but also on what we may, with apologies to Monty Python, call the liberation front. The elimination of suffering promised by Buddhists and Nyayikas alike is one more objective that can be achieved through knowledge and through knowledge alone. As this little bit of dialectic reminds us, in Indian philosophy it was never enough to be right. You had to prove that your opponents were wrong. Which brings us to the other major interest of Nyaya, the theory of debate. Gautama says that there are two kinds, honest debate, whose aim is to ascertain the truth, and tricky debate, in which the goal is to defeat the opponents at all costs, even if this means resorting to underhanded tactics. A third style of debate is that used by skeptics, who wish to refute the claims of all philosophical doctrines without advancing any positive stance of their own. The master of this third style, they claim, lived at about the same time that the Nyaya Sutra was given its current form. He was the Buddhist thinker Nagarjuna, and posed a formidable challenge to the whole project of Nyaya. Vatsyayana dismisses this sort of general skepticism as being incoherent. Merely by rejecting the positive theories of other philosophers, the skeptics are forced to make positive claims of their own, because to deny a proposition is to assert its opposite. If the Buddhists deny that there is an enduring self, this means asserting that there is no enduring self, which is itself a philosophical claim. Whether Nagarjuna can rise to this challenge is something we'll have to decide later in this series. For now, we want to point out a more subtle way that the Nayayikas part ways with their skeptical opponents. Given the centrality of the Pramanas to Nyaya thought, you might expect that they would be at pains to defend the legitimacy of these ways of knowing, but this isn't exactly right. Instead, the Nyaya thinkers tend just to assume that the Pramanas must be reliable. It is a theory of default trust in our cognitions. This may sound familiar. It sounds like the innocent until proven guilty epistemology of Mimamsa. The two schools are indeed in basic agreement on this, and Nyaya supplies a further argument that can be used against skeptics who refuse to assume that the pramanas do indeed provide knowledge. Udyotakara puts the point well. False cognitions are imitations of correct cognitions, therefore you must provide some example of correct cognition. In other words, false cognitions, such as those we have in perceptual illusions or dreams, can only be called false in contrast to other true cognitions. Vatsyayana already provides an example to make the same point. 
Suppose I see a wooden post from a distance and think it is a person. Obviously, in this case, perception has gone wrong, so it is not functioning to provide me with knowledge. Yet this very same case also shows that perception does sometimes succeed in giving me knowledge. If I had never correctly perceived a human being, I would not be in a position to perceive a wooden post incorrectly as a person. So much for the destructive kind of debate practiced by the skeptic, which Udyotakara denounced as mere quibbles, though he took them seriously enough to rise to the defense of Gautama's philosophy. What about the more productive, honest sort of debate, which actually seeks truth? This practice forms the basis of the Nyaya method of philosophical inquiry. A philosophical inquiry, thinks Gautama, is a process by which we move from an initial uncertainty about a given thing to understanding that it has certain properties. The procedure involves seven essential ingredients, doubt, purpose, observational data, doctrinal bases, a syllogistic inference, hypothetical argument, and a final decision. Let's examine each of these in turn. We begin with the initial doubt that launches the investigation. It always takes the form of wondering whether a given object has some feature or not. Within this broad category, there are five more specific types of doubt. There is the ordinary sort of doubt, when an object is perceived in outline, but its specific character is unclear. We just mentioned an example like this with the wooden post mistaken for a person. Then, there is the sort of doubt where the nature or essence of an object is known, but its properties are unknown. We might wonder, is a sound like the noise of something breaking, a quality of air, or a movement in the air? There is also the sort of uncertainty that occurs when two contradictory statements are made concerning the same object, and we are unsure which statement is true. Furthermore, there are doubts about whether a thing is real at all or only an illusion, like the appearance of water in a desert mirage. Finally, we might doubt whether an object that we cannot see is really there, such as the giraffe that may or may not be in the kitchen. Of course, you probably wouldn't worry that you may have a giraffe in the kitchen unless you had a good reason to think, or hope, that this is the case, and rightly so from Gautama's point of view. He is not encouraging us to engage in idle speculation or to explore every doubt we can think of, no matter how remote. In a rational inquiry, there should be some purpose for inquiring. This is the second element on Gautama's list. Like knowing, inquiring is an action and always has some goal. In this case, it's a goal pursued by more than one person. All this is framed as a method of debate, and for this to proceed successfully, the parties to the debate need some shared common ground. Hence the next items on the list, the debate must proceed on the basis of certain background principles and also empirical data, the so-called corroborative instances to which either side can appeal. Political disputes are often fruitless because this condition is not satisfied. If two sides disagree about all the facts, they aren't likely to have a useful conversation about how to respond to the facts. Assumptions that aren't shared can also be useful in debate, though. If a disputant produces an argument which contradicts a doctrine of his own school, and this is pointed out by the opponent, then his argument is undermined. Sometimes philosophers offer proofs that only work according to the premises of their own school, which may be useful among allies but will cut no ice in a debate with rival schools. And of course, sometimes we grant premises for the sake of argument, simply to facilitate the inquiry. These are the preconditions for debate, 
Now Gautama sets out the ground rules along which the debates should proceed. For the first time in India, we have here in the Nyaya Sutra a schematic analysis of valid argument patterns. In general, Gautama says, a good argument runs as follows. We know that some object has a first property because it has some second property that is always found together with the first property. The second property pervades the first. The classic example is that where there is smoke, there is fire. So if I see smoke on a mountain, then I can infer that there is a fire on the mountain. The inference is only a good one if the two properties have the right relation. I can only be confident about the fire if there is really fire wherever there is smoke. Gautama formalizes this with a five-limbed argument scheme. First, I state the thesis to be proved, there is a fire on the mountain. Second, I cite the reason, it's because I see smoke up there. Third, I invoke a universal rule and give an example to illustrate, where there is smoke, there is fire, just like at home in the kitchen. Fourth and fifth, I apply the universal rule and draw my conclusion, there is smoke on the mountain, so there must be fire there. Now, there are several odd things about this analysis. For one thing, why do I need to mention an example? Why bother pointing out that we've seen fire produce smoke in kitchens, like that time when the giraffe forgot to turn the oven off? Giving an example doesn't seem logically necessary, but it does make sense in the context of a debate, since the goal is to convince the other side that the universal rule is a good one. Another problem is that the last step seems rather superfluous. At the very beginning, I already stated the thesis that there is a fire, so why repeat this at the end? Again, it makes sense in a dialectical context. It's one thing for me to tell you what I am going to prove, or state it as a conjecture, another to state that I have proved it even if I do so in the same words, there is fire on the mountain. Of course, Gautama's procedure can also be used in philosophical contexts, his Nyaya Sutra includes a nice case where we are shown that sound is non-eternal. The universal rule applied here is that everything that is produced is also eventually destroyed, as for instance a jar. Remember, you have to give an example. Since sound is produced, it too must eventually be destroyed, therefore sound is non-eternal. This isn't the only argument form described by Gautama, though. One of the most interesting elements of philosophical inquiry in his system is called tarka. This means hypothetical or counterfactual reasoning. If this were true, then that would be true, but that isn't true, so this isn't either. For example, if there were really a giraffe in the kitchen, it would be making a lot of noise, but I don't hear anything, so there is no giraffe in there. This is a style of reasoning also used by the Madhyamika Buddhists, who call it prasanga. It is useful for philosophers because they can use it to eliminate rival theories. In fact, we've already seen it in action earlier in this episode. If, as the skeptic claimed, there were no valid means of acquiring knowledge, we could never get through everyday life successfully. But we do get through everyday life successfully, so there must be some valid means of acquiring knowledge. Tarka is such a powerful form of argument that you might think that it too would count as a means of knowing. Yet, Nyaya denies that this sort of counterfactual reasoning is a pramana. Why? The problem might seem to be that we can only use tarka to rule things out. It tells me that there is no giraffe in the kitchen, but couldn't tell me that there is a giraffe in the kitchen. But that seems wrong. After all, we just used it to establish the positive and highly significant thesis that there are valid means of knowing. 
More likely, the problem is that Tarka doesn't really give us any direct basis for knowing something or for understanding that it is the case. It just shows us that something must be true given other things we know. I perceive directly that the kitchen is quiet and only indirectly infer that there is no giraffe there. Another problem may have been that Tarka reasoning requires me to hypothesize something that is not true. If there were a giraffe in the kitchen, which there isn't, then it would be making a terrific racket. The Nayayikas may have hesitated to allow their precious pramanas to be tainted by the assumption of a falsehood, even if it is done on the way to proving something true. And we're now well on the way to understanding the Nyaya theory of truth. But we're not done yet. In this episode, we've been talking about the basic ideas of the system, looking at their reasons for being confident that knowledge is possible and their strategies for prevailing in honest debate. But we need to examine those pramanas more closely, and that's what we're going to do next time, as we try to understand what Nyaya means by perception and by inference. So let's close with a bit of Tarka. If you weren't interested in knowing more about Nyaya epistemology, then you probably wouldn't bother to tune in. But since you are interested, we'll see you next time here on the History of Philosophy in India. Oh,